This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is Rick Edelman. And if you are an advisor, if you are somebody who is interested in the financial services industry or a consumer uh, who is looking for financial advice, uh, you're going to want to hear this conversation. Uh, Rick has built a powerhouse firm over the past 30 years. They now manage $21 billion, uh, and he did it really uh, in a in a way that is fairly unique. When, when he launched Edelman Financial Services, there weren't very many, if any, other similar firms. He, he was a pioneer. He was doing things before there was a script or a roadmap or any sort of guidance, and he and his wife were kind of making it up uh, along the way. They, they knew what they didn't want to do. They saw what was taking place uh, at the big brokerage firms, and they kind of became the anti-broker. Uh, not only are they um, a traditional RIA as we think of them, meaning they're fee-based, not commission or transactional-based, uh, but they effectively have no minimums. If you're a $5,000 uh, account, they'll take it. If you're less than $5,000, uh, they'll take your money and waive their fee uh, on a pro bono basis. I can't think of any other firm that approaches asset management that way. It's fairly unique. And and Edelman says, shame on people who don't do that. If you're in the services industry, like a doctor, you have an obligation to your clients. If it's, if it's not a, quite a Hippocratic oath, Certainly, the the fiduciary standard requires not only uh, putting the client first, but putting people who might not be clients first. And I think that's both a a unique and refreshing perspective that we don't hear a lot of uh, in the world of finance. So I expect you'll find this conversation fascinating. So with no further ado, my conversation with Edelman Financial's Rick Edelman. My special guest today is Rick Edelman. He is chairman and co-founder of Edelman Financial Services, a firm that manages well over $20 billion in assets for 34,000 families via 43 offices across the USA. Rick is the author of no less than nine books on financing, perhaps most notably, The Truth About Money, which is now in its fourth edition, is that right? Correct. Fourth edition. It is the winner of several uh, prizes and awards on financial literacy and education. Edelman Financial Services has been ranked either one or two, uh, the number one or two independent financial advisor in the U.S. by Barron's for the years 2009 to 2012. And then they kicked me off the list. They kicked you off the list. We'll get into that. Rick Edelman, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. Great to be with you. Uh, You know, I've been looking forward to this since we bumped into each other at a conference uh, way back when in um, the spring, and you just sort of derailed me. Why did they they kick you off the Barron's list? How do you go from number one to off the list? Well, because they wanted to shake up the list and and create an opportunity for others to get Accolades is number one, uh-huh. and I I uh, was number one three times, and that one in between I was number two, and so we agreed that I was evolving personally. Uh-huh. Um, I was spending as our firm grew, we we were 
much bigger than the typical advisory sure. firm, of course, with $21 billion in assets. And uh, with 43 offices, 160 advisors, 600 employees these days, I was spending as much of my time as CEO running the business right. as, as an advisor working with individual clients. And the, the folks at uh, Barron's and I recognized that we were creating the next generation in the advisory marketplace. You know, when, when we started way back when, I got licensed in 86. How about you? Uh, ninety something. Yeah, I mean back back then, every, and that was the seven. I didn't get the six. The I didn't get the sixty five for much another later. decade later. Yeah, and then so, gave up the seven. So when we began uh, back in the eighties, there was no financial planning firm you could go join. So right. we had no choice but to start our own because the industry was brand new, and I was that first generation among the pioneers who created this industry. Were you an early CFP? Uh, I never obtained my CFP. Mm. I didn't have the time. Me neither. Uh, and I, I ended up teaching classes of CFPs, and I'm a, continue, a certified continuing ed instructor, and I taught at Georgetown University for nine years. Uh, I hold six professional designations, but never bothered to get that one. So, so wait, let me interrupt you here, because this is really fascinating. You began more or less as a financial journalist, and is that isn't that the background? Yes. And where did where did Georgetown fit in in the chronology? So my background uh, as is as a journalist. That was my degree. I have a communications degree, not a business degree. Mm-hmm. I like to brag that I graduated college without ever having taken a business class. Right. Which means I wasn't brainwashed. In journalism school, they teach you two things: one, how to ask questions. And two, how to explain the answers in plain English. Mm-hmm. And my two very good skills. Very important when dealing with individual consumers who aren't expert in this subject. And so I was writing in the financial trade press out of college, and that was my entree to personal finance. The publisher I started in the financial in the medical field, but my publisher owned a variety of financial publications, and there were twenty three of us on the editorial staff, and we ended up writing for a whole bunch of different things. And I wrote for some financial publications, and that was my entree. And my wife and I, in our early 20s, recognizing with my experience now as a writer in the financial press, hey, we ought to pay attention to this, and we decided to go to a financial planner. Like most young couples, we wanted to buy a house. And we went to a financial planner for advice on how to do that. He ended up telling us uh, to lie on our mortgage application, told us to commit a felony, qualify for the mortgage. Um, the guy was a jerk. He, we could not believe that this crook was telling us to do this. It really made us mad. And that was the impetus for us saying, you know what? Why don't we learn how to do this ourselves and then teach others what we've learned? And that was the basis. And of, not lie in the process. And of, not lie in the Give people huh. good advice, not bad advice. Huh. And so Jean quit her job, went to work for Payne Weber in their back office to learn the back end operational side of the business. I got securities licensed, uh, joined an independent firm, uh, became an independent advisor immediately. And on, on the broker dealer side or on, on the on RIA? the broker dealer side like the, there really wasn't an RIA there wasn't side an RIA side back then it really didn't exist I mean it would, technically did and, but nobody and did why don't that. you explain to listeners the difference between commission and fees just the the nickel version well back in the old days you had uh, the brokerage licenses uh, where you uh, made money commissions selling mutual funds. Um, and every time you sold a mutual fund, you're in a commission for doing so. The notion of a fee-based advisor uh, being licensed by the SEC came about much later. Uh, and we made that jump in uh, the early 2000s. And so uh, we began our firm in the 1980s. And 
focused on financial education, teaching consumers how money works and how to make it work for them. And we did it by seminars, uh, teaching elementary school PTAs how to save for college. Hmm. And the word spread, and we ended up being invited on the radio and eventually being offered my own radio show. And now, 27, 28 years later, it's the longest-running national personal finance radio show in the country. That's fantastic. You launched the firm in 91? In 86. In 86, as a broker-dealer. I was affiliated with a broker dealer for licensing and purposes. then the ria part wasn't until the 2000s that came in 03, uh, 03. and we launched our um, uh, fee-based money management program the edelman managed asset program we launched that in 2005 huh. and today it's one of the largest turnkey asset management programs in the industry with 21 billion in assets that that that's quite amazing so the real question that's on my mind after hearing this is You've been doing this for 27 years. Who Who is your competitors in that same space? Is it the big Merrill Lynch's? Is it the LPL's? Is it uh, Dynasty or Hightower? How do you look at the world out there and say, oh, we're competing head-to-head with these guys? It's everybody and nobody. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, you know, I'm a big fan of astronomy, uh, and Gene and I have done some philanthropic activities uh, in astronomy. We have a big interest there. So let me give you an analogy. We know how big galaxies galaxies are, and we know that a couple of galaxies are uh, colliding. Including uh, ours. Uh, including ours. And when you look at the NASA photographs uh, of these colliding galaxies, there's an assumption when you first look at them that all of the stars within the galaxies and all the planets within the galaxies will collide and be big explosions and all that kind of good stuff. Except for the, the vast spaces between the stars. Exactly. And the galaxies are so huge that they will so-called collide, but they will pass through each other Mm -hmm. and nothing will ever touch anything else because the spaces are so vast. By the same notion in the financial services industry, our industry is so big. It's a $97 trillion economy. That's how much money is invested. That's the net worth, the, the, the market value of all things in this country that have assets and market value, stocks, bonds, real estate, business assets. $97 trillion. No one in our industry has market share. Merrill Lynch, one of the biggest in the industry, has about $3 trillion. Three out of 97. They have no market share. Vanguard's coming up on five, BlackRock on six. And there's no market share anywhere. If you look at the soft drink industry, there's Coke and Pepsi and everyone else. Look at the airline industry. There's Delta, United, and everyone else. In most businesses, there are three or four major competitors who have 80% market share. They're competing all the time. In our industry... Barry, you're a competitor of mine. Have you ever encountered one of my clients? Ever? Anywhere? I don't think so. And I've never encountered one of yours, because this industry is huge. We're talking about 300 million Americans dealing with 300,000 advisors, most of whom have a couple of hundred clients, and dealing with a couple of tens of millions of assets. And so, on the one hand, this industry is so huge, this economy is so vast, our country is so broad, we will never encounter competition anywhere. We're all on the frontier, and there are a bunch of guys in the wilderness trying to shoot game, but we'll never encounter each other on the mountains, because the mountains are too big. That's one answer. Here's the other answer. Everybody is my competition. Everywhere. Money Magazine and Kiplinger's Two publications that are constantly giving financial advice for five ninety five a month mm-hmm. are competition to me because 
I'm in the business of trying to get consumers to listen to my advice. And they're being distracted by the advice from Money Magazine and Kiplingers. They're being distracted by The Motley Fool. They're being distracted by Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman and Jim Cramer and CNBC. And they're being distracted by the brokerage, the big box brokerage firms, Merrill Lynch and Wells Fargo and UBS and all the majors. They're being distracted by the mutual fund companies, Fidelity and Vanguard and T. Rowe Price and TIAA. They're being distracted by the banks, um, U.S. uh, Trust and Bank of America and on and on and on. So in one sense... Everybody, everywhere is my competition. So it depends on how you look at it. I have to mention, you have a weekly radio show. You hold regular seminars. You've written nine books. What does that footprint do to distinguish you, Rick Edelman, from your everyone and no one competition? Well, it provides name recognition Mm -hmm. uh, on the one hand. It also, very importantly, helps consumers understand our philosophical view on financial planning and investment management. It allows them to kick the tire, so to speak. It allows them to get a lot of free or low-cost advice um, that can be applicable to their own personal situation uh, in a non-threatening way. They can digest it as they wish, whether it's listening to the radio or watching our videos or my uh, television series on public TV or uh, going to our seminars or reading our newsletter or going to our website. Uh, we, we make financial education accessible. We make it easy. We make it non-threatening. And I try really hard to make it fun. So uh, Scott Galloway is a professor at NYU Stern, and he covers a lot of technology companies like Amazon and Facebook and Google, and he constantly says uh, Amazon is where they are today because their narrative is so clear, Mm -hmm. so well-defined, so well-told by Jeff Bezos. Uh, It sounds like you're describing a somewhat similar approach that the Rick Edelman story or Edelman Financial Services story is the business you're in, and everything else is just running the nuts and bolts of it. That's correct. Um, Most of the advisors in this industry, in my experience, come from a business background. They uh, came from the brokerage industry, the insurance industry. They spend most of their time talking to each other, which means they're talking shop. Right. And filled with jargon. And they don't know how to talk to ordinary consumers in plain English, in language people understand, that is understandable and actionable. And my background in communications helps me uh, talk in plain English to folks in, in clear, easy language. And it's I've learned it's a big advantage because consumers are intimidated by this subject. They don't have any background in it. Most people go through their entire K-16 to education without ever taking a personal finance class. Their parents taught them nothing about money. Their employers teach them nothing about money. And they're illiterate. We have a nation of financial illiterates. Every study tells us this, that ordinary Americans can't pass a basic personal literacy, financial literacy class or, or test. And so we are the oasis for these folks. We help them understand that this stuff is not complicated. It's incredibly simple and easy to understand. It's Wall Street that tries to make it intimidating, to make you their slave, to make you think that you're dependent on them, to buy their high-priced, high-commission, high-risk, low-liquidity products that are designed to benefit themselves first and the consumer second. Uh, actually, the consumer third. They benefit themselves first, the brokers shareholders, second. Shareholders, yeah. yeah. Also, and, and, and the shareholders. Uh, yeah, so right, the, the consumer's fourth. Uh, and <laughs> 
And so we've always taken a different attitude, my wife and I. We, we took this from a consumer perspective and said, we want to understand how this works as consumers, and we're simply going to share what we've learned with others. And that's the basis of our books. The tagline of my first book is that uh, personal finance is fun. Uh, and you know, we, we wrote it and do all the other financial education we do because, very simply, uh, money doesn't come with instructions. You know, you, you referenced the complexity and the complications of finance on Wall Street. That has been described as a feature, not a bug. You obviously agree with that. Yes. Meaning, if we make this really sophisticated and complex and convoluted, people just pay us a fee to manage it and they can't yeah, be bothered Yeah, people, with it. you know, Wall Street made its money by intimidating people, obfuscating, by uh, being opaque and not being upfront and transparent. Our attitude is, I don't have to have a bias. I don't have to try to sell you a product. Instead, I'll just teach you how money works. I'll explain to you the difference between a stock and a bond. And once you understand the difference, which is really easy, you can then make an informed decision. And as long as you retain me to assist you with this, then I can make a living, and we both win. So I don't have to be a champion of any particular product or any particular company uh, or any particular strategy. We're free to do whatever is in the client's best interest, and that is uncommon in our industry. So we didn't really talk about this previously. What about things like alternative investments, hedge funds, venture capital, private equity? Is that something that you guys look at, or do you, is that just too complicated and too expensive for, for your client base? We have available to us, as you do, virtually every product available in the industry. So we can give our clients anything. We choose not to give them any of the stuff you've just described because they are not in the client's best interest. These products are too complicated. They're too expensive. They have a terrible history of underperformance. They're very high risk. And they're illiquid. Uh, I mean, often, but aside, aside from those things. Well, and also they're often very uh, <laughs> adverse tax consequences. So other than that, you know, you know how, the, was the, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? Right. I, I'm fond of saying come for the fa- high fees, stay for the underperformance. <laughs> Is, uh, works out really well. And you mentioned earlier uh, the Dave Ramseys and Susie Ormans of the world. Mm-hmm. How, how do you contrast what the Rick Edelmans of the world do versus that group? Well, you know, Or would I, you put yourself in that group? I, you know, I, if I were trying to be provocative, you know, I would do something funny by saying the difference between me and them is that I'm not an idiot. Um, but, but you're not going to be provocative I'm not gonna you're be, not going to say I'm that. not going to be provocative okay. and say that. More <laughs> seriously, I mean, both of them are very talented and, and proven um, successes in what they do. There's um, a very big difference in what they do versus what I do. Mm-hmm. And um, it's twofold. Number one, I'm an actual practicing financial planner, dealing with actual clients, sitting across uh, the coffee table, giving advice to people on a long-term, years and decades basis, getting to know them and their families in very intimate ways. That is a very different perspective than when you're just talking into a microphone on the radio to the masses, where even if you're doing a call-in show, as Susie does and Dave does and I do, you really can't do all that much for someone in a three-minute radio telephone conversation. And so when you are only doing mass media activity, you're limited in your ability to truly serve the client well, which is why we always say on my show, don't act on anything you ever hear on the show. Use it as the basis for learning more and talking to an individual advisor about your own personal circumstances. There's one other very fundamental difference between Susie and and Dave and, and myself. They're talking to a different audience. 
And that is why their advice is different than mine. So who is your audience and who is their audience? Their audience I like to refer to as the young and the stupid. Um, again, okay. I'm not going to be particularly provocative. <laughs> um, they're talking predominantly to people who are young. Uh, demographically, if you look at their data, that's Susie what you see. Susie Orman? Is, I always Absolutely. think of her as more as a gray hair audience, no, not no, a young no, no, and no, hip no, audience. No, 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 not at all. 18 to 34-year-old single females, predominantly as their huh. audience. Okay. Uh, and these folks don't have much money. They don't have much knowledge. And they are often, in many cases, the vast majority of both of their audiences are immature and irresponsible with personal finance. Dave's big thing is helping people get out of debt. Right. People have too much credit card debt. They're over their heads with mortgage debt, That's student fair. loan debt. And his advice, which is a huge focus on getting rid of that debt, is absolutely right, absolutely perfect for his audience. Susie, very similar. When they're talking to people who are irresponsible with money, who are dealing with the emotional issues of money, uh, who are dealing with money as a power tool, and it's an impact on their relationships that they have with their right. their partner, their spouse, their families, the advice they're giving them is very, very good, very, very important. But I'm not talking to those people. People I'm talking to are 50 years of age plus. They tend to be married. They tend to be dual income. They tend to be college educated. They tend to have half a million dollars of investments or more. All of this data is shown by the survey research of our radio audiences and our seminar audiences. And we know that these folks don't need my advice on whether or not they can afford a cafe latte. Right. They don't because they're I've not always act- hated that advice. By the way, they're, you know, if you if a five dollar latte is going to make a difference in your ability to retire, you're doing something else very wrong. And that's my point. So my audience doesn't need that kind of advice. They don't need me to harp on them about the fact that they're acting stupid, that they're buying, you know, fancy uh, pocketbooks and lots of jewelry and big. Vi- costly vacations when they're not even joining their 401k at work. I don't have to tell my clients this because my clients are mature, intelligent, responsible members of their community who simply want to understand the complexities of money, Mm -hmm. of tax law, estate planning, insurance, long-term care, family issues, to help them make the best decisions that they're already trying to make. So all we do is kind of like tweak our clients along. Uh, Do this instead of that because it's more efficient, more effective, it's lower risk, lower cost, lower in tax. And so our audiences are very different. Therefore, the advice Dave Ramsey gives is dead wrong for my clients. But the advice I give my clients is probably dead wrong for his. And so there is a place for Dave Ramsey in this world and for Susie Orman and for me. And the audience needs to recognize who is it they need to be listening to based on their own situations. Let's talk about running a firm as large as yours. You have 43 offices in 16 states. You work with 34,000 families. How many employees do you have working for you? Over 600 now. So, so that's a really big shop. Yeah. And you earlier either proudly or sheepishly admitted you took no business classes whatsoever. Right. How do you as chairman oversee such an empire? Well, these days I don't have to. <laughs> so that's the good news. Uh, a year and a half ago, we brought in a CEO for the first time uh, so that I didn't have to continue running the firm on a daily basis. My wife and I started the firm 31 years ago, and we ran it uh, ourselves uh, for a very, very long time, the first 30 years. And we began to realize that I was doing three major things. One, uh, serving as a financial planner to my personal clients that I've mm-hmm. had for decades. Uh, two, serving as the public face of the, of the firm, writing books, doing radio and TV, seminars, public appearances, and all that kind of good stuff. And third, serving as CEO of a growing enterprise. When you do all three things on a full-time basis, something has to 
slip. And so we recognized that it was, you know, I'm a really good CEO. I've, I've, done better as a entrepreneur and founder than most in the industry, but I wasn't doing it full time. So better to bring in another talented, proven executive in our industry as a full-time CEO, so I didn't have to deal with the day-to-day. Because let's face it, dealing with IT and operations and compliance and you know finance and accounting, you're right, that's not fun. That's all why I got into the business. I got into the business because I love consumers. And I'm not a big fan of money. I'm not a big fan of the subject of personal finance and investments. I'm a big fan of individuals, of people, of their families, helping them achieve the goals they have in life, getting their kids into college and buying homes and caring for aging parents. That's the fun. That's why we all get into financial planning. And the operational side of the business is a distraction, a necessary one, an obligatory one, but nevertheless a distraction. So by bringing in Ryan Parker... Where was he previously? He was at LPL previously, Uh and before that, which had 17,000, I think, 15,000 financial advisors in their organization. Prior to that, uh, uh, Frank Russell, uh, one of the biggest firms in our industry, and uh, before that, Franklin Templeton, uh, one of the biggest mutual fund companies in America. 20-year executive, uh, fabulous guy, very skilled uh, and talented, who's now running the firm day-to-day, so I don't have to deal with all of that. And uh, I have my financial planning team working with my clients for the most part, and so I can focus my energies and attention on bigger picture stuff that is really going to move the needle for America, not just our firms, but all of America dealing with the major challenges we're dealing in the field of personal finance. So you're now uh, 20.6? I'm always afraid to round up, but... 20, let's call it 21. It depends on what the market did today. You know, right. it's 20, 21 billion. You know, so, it's, what, well, what's, what's 100 million of them? It's not friends? swinging 5% a day. No. It's the difference between 20 and 21. But when did that really ramp up? If you launched 31 years ago, was it was it that hockey stick growth immediately? Was it a long, slow process? Tell us about what that growth curve looked like. It has been growing steadily. Uh, and it was, growth was never our goal. Gene and I were real simple about it. We said, look, we're going to help people. And if somebody asks for our help and we don't have the capacity to help them, we'll grow. We'll add a financial planner who can mm-hmm. assist. And we'll stop growing when people stop asking us for help. But we continue to receive tens of thousands of phone calls and emails a year from people asking for our help. And so we continue to grow to serve them. The real key for us as we've grown is to sustain who we are because that's why Meaning people the come corporate to us. culture, the philosophy, the you you know there's a phrase somebody in your office referenced one face one voice. Right. What does that mean? That's an internal phrase. It's gotten out into the public, which is fine, but it was never meant to be a slogan uh, externally, but it's be, kind of become one. The, the real message is this. When seem, when someone calls our office asking to talk with an advisor. The reason they're doing that is that they've had some exposure somewhere to our organization. They've heard my radio show, they've been to a seminar, they've read one of my books, they've seen my TV show, they've been to our website, something somewhere. And because of that, they've been exposed to our philosophy. They know how I feel about mortgages, which is different from most advisors. They know how I feel about muni bonds. They know how I feel about investment management, about insurance and taxes and all this kind of good stuff. So when they call in, it's because they liked what they heard. They enjoyed that advice and they want to know that the advice they're going to get from my colleague is the same as the advice they would have gotten from me personally. And so we work really hard to make sure that the client experience is uniform within the firm, that no matter which of my 160 advisors you talk to, the philosophy, the methodology, the entire client experience will be the same. It's the Starbucks model. 
Go to any Starbucks in the country. You know what your experience will be. Every latte tastes the same, no matter where you are. The stores all have the same look and feel. Mm-hmm. The client service, customer service for them, is similar. The the baristas all act the same way. They can meet you. They greet you the same way. And so we want the client experience to be not dependent on you talking to me but on the firm itself, because that's the Achilles heel in the financial services industry. Merrill Lynch has, what, 15,000 brokers? The thundering herd. And the experience you have as a client depends on which of those 15,000 right. you talk to. Because They're all totally different. Totally. You have one guy buying IBM, and another one is shorting it. One guy is trading options, another one is buying muni bonds. Merrill couldn't care less. As long as those brokers are acting honestly and ethically and morally and profitably, the advisors are free to do what they want, which means the advice you get is dependent on the advisor, not on Merrill. That's not the same at Edelman Financial. At our firm, it's all about the firm. It isn't about the individual advisor. So that has been a hamstring in our growth because we can only bring in advisors who agree with me, who adhere to the philosophy, methodology, and the process that we use so that we can sustain the corporate culture and the client experience. And so we don't have 15,000 brokers like Merrill does. I wish I did, but we don't. One day I hope we will. We have 160. And uh, the client experience, I fully believe, is consistent across the spectrum in our firm. What surprised you about how you've developed? Was it was it the number of advisors you've added, the number of clients? Like, what was that process like? And and what was as expected and what was, hey, I really wasn't uh, thinking about that. I guess the surprise to me was that we serve a marketplace and we deliver services to that market in a manner that is different from pretty much everybody else in the industry. When you say you deliver services, is it the services to clients or is it the footprint you have that attracts the clients in the first place? The services to the client. Um, most advisors... Most firms are targeting the high net worth. Mm-hmm. They w- want to deal with people who have a million dollars or more. And your minimum is? $5,000. That's very unusual. It's unheard of. And it used to be 50000 But Is it 5000 with an advisor or th- 5000 with a robo-advisor? Or either, way. It? either way. And either way. Either way. And if you don't have the 5000 we'll help you anyway. We'll treat you as a pro bono case, and we'll help you until you get the 5000 Really? So we don't care whether you have any money or not. We only care as to whether or not you want to improve your financial lot in life, and if you're willing to take our advice. So let me push back at that. I I could hear all the advisors listening saying, well, uh, there are certain costs associated with each household. Mm -hmm. You have legal and accounting and compliance and all the software stack we have. There's a per household cost to that. At Forget 50,000. At 5,000, it's a big money loser. Yeah, so? And... What's your point? Well, this is what the why I think a lot of people don't take those clients. Yeah, well, shame on them. Arrogant SOBs, they ought to get the hell out of this industry. And explain what motivates you. Would you, you imagine to... a physician saying, I'd love to help you, but unfortunately, you don't have any money, so I'm sorry, I'm not going to give you the said, surgery you That need. gets said every single day. Oh, we don't have insurance. Well, go to the emergency room. I can't help you. And so that's exactly what happens. And they do get the services and the care that they need because that's what there isn't a physician in this country that will turn down a sick patient because they don't have the money. And that's ridiculous. And well, they, so, if they don't have the insurance, they're not getting past the nurse at the front door. 
only in certain small private practices, but if you look at the vast majority of physicians who are dealing with a Hippocratic Oath, they are not going to look at somebody lying on the sidewalk bleeding to death saying, wait a minute, I think I want to check the guy's wallet before I check Oh, no, no, that's a different situation. Well, it's the same thing here. These people are coming to us saying, I'm bleeding to death and I need your help. And I'm not going to say to them, well, can you afford my fee? My answer is, I'm going to help you. And if you can't afford my fee, I'll waive my fee. Because what matters more is that you get the help that you need. And you're right. Most advisors won't do it because their attitude is, I can only handle this is what most advisors say. I can I, handle 150 families and that's it. And I can't fill them with people who can't afford me. Mm-hmm. So this is why they're arrogant and they're idiots. If you can't handle <laughs> to serve these people because you can only handle 150 clients, then double your capacity to 300. Bring uh-huh. in another advisor who because now you got two advisors, you now have double the capacity. And you build the infrastructure so that the criteria of can I afford you is no longer gone. And I'll take it a step further from a practice management perspective. Mm-hmm. I know this radio show we're talking to consumers. Let me talk to advisors for a moment. If you're an advisor and your attitude is I can't afford to take on that small client because they don't have any money, let me tell you something. The goodwill you will generate in serving that client for years, that person will age in life, and as they do, they will get money. They will get an inheritance. They will win a legal judgment. They will win the lottery. They will get. Uh, they will marry up. They, something will happen in their life, and the goodwill you have bestowed on them for years will come back to you in spades through referrals. You don't know who they know. You don't know who they're going to become. So if you insist on being self-interested and self-motivated, treat it like planting seeds. Stop looking inward at what's in it for you and recognize that you have an obligation with your skills, talent, and knowledge to help people who lack all three, to serve them the way they need to be served. Don't fulfill and maintain the terrible relationship and reputation that our industry has, which is that we will only serve the one percenters. This is why the 99 percenters hate Wall Street. It's a terrible reputation Wall Street has, and it's well-deserved. So if you are a consumer, let me shift gears now and talking to consumers. If you're trying, struggling, looking for an advisor who won't help you because you're not already a millionaire... Well, now you know there's a firm that will help you, an award-winning organization that will give you the advice you need and the services that you need, whether you have the million or simply wish that you did. I love that. I love that I've pushed your buttons and, and gotten you rolling. Let me ask you another question that I know you're somewhat passionate about. You mentioned there are 300,000 financial advisors in the United States. Yeah. I've heard you say that most of these folks are either going to have to merge or get hired by a, bi- a bigger firm mm-hmm. or go out of business. Right. True or false? Yes. Yeah, so over the next five to ten years, half of them will be gone. Half will be gone. Yes. So the 300 will be 150. Right. What What are the other half going to be doing? They'll be... Uh, other than working for you. Or you. Uh, <laughs> or they'll be... They'll be They'll get together and, and create larger practices. They will merge with each other. Mm-hmm. They will join larger practices. Uh, or they will be out of the business. The notion of a small solo practitioner will be gone. That that's a quaint notion, but it's very you know Norman Rockwell Americana. Hey, here's a person who's in a small town. Mm-hmm. He hung a shingle out. He, he or she mm-hmm. is working with his friends and neighbors right. and. What is wrong with that model? It's unsustainable. This is the model that you began with. It's the model I began with, model we all did. And it's not that the model's bad. It's simply not sustainable in today's environment. And there are three reasons for it. Let's hear. One is regulatory. Two is competition. And Mm -hmm. three is technology. 
from a regulatory perspective, the SEC is more demanding, and I put that in quotes as a good word, not a bad word. The SEC is more demanding than ever in making sure that advisors are serving the client's best interests, that they that the advisors are engaging in practices that are in the spirit and intent of the law, not merely the regs of the law. Mm-hmm. And so many advisors are currently selling products that in the future will not be able to be sold. We're already beginning to see the beginnings of the fiduciary standard coming about. Despite the best efforts of the current administration, who are not apparently big fans of the fiduciary rule. Nor is the industry. And despite all of their efforts to delay it, quash it, it's eventually going to happen. And when it does, the majority of investment products currently foisted on the American populace today will cease to exist. And when they cease to exist, so will the commissions that are behind them. The non-traded REITs that have a 10% commission, variable Wait, universal you, you life. you have a problem with non-traded REITs with a 10% VIG? You know, yeah. how, is, how, is, uh, how are the boys going to make their money uh, down by the docks? If they can't charge a 10% tax on that They won't be able to, and they're going to quit the business, and they're going to become used car salesmen, which is what they should be doing anyway. (laughs) So they're not going to be able to survive because the regulatory environment will not allow them to continue operating the way that they currently do. Margins are going to be crushed, revenues are going to be decreased, and many of these organizations will just be thrown out of business. In fact, that's one of the arguments the industry has used in court to overturn the rule. They've literally said to the judge, if this rule goes in, we're going to be out of business because we can't make the money we're making. Well, that's the whole point of the rule. So that's a rather silly argument, I thought. That's number one is regulation. Uh-huh. Number two is competition. Firms like mine are growing in ways that have never been before. There are probably a dozen of us, firms like mine, that have become not just practices, but companies. Businesses, survivable businesses. Yeah, where we have the funding of private equity firms, where we have incredibly deep pockets. We have world-class executives from a variety of of expertise in IT, finance and accounting, in operations and compliance, and all over the map, allowing us to run our companies the way that IBM runs its company, enabling us to do things on a huge, impactful basis. You're going to see these mega firms like Edelman Financial in the future, you're going to see a trillion-dollar RIA, just like you have trillion-dollar brokerage firms. And that's going to create a big challenge for the individual practitioner because he isn't going to have the financial resources, largely, again, because of technology, point number three. Technology is getting to the point where much of what that old country doctor does is being supplanted by technological solutions. The same thing to advisors. Investment management is already a commodity. You already have the ability to get investment management for 25 basis points, one quarter of 1% per year incredibly low cost. So advisors who make their money by charging big fees on investment management or who claim they can beat the market, those days are gone. So the technological environment is going to be that the guy who's got in that little Norman Rockwell town of 150 clients, the clients are going to be saying to that advisor, I want the services of the biggest, best firms. And that little country bumpkin isn't going to be able to provide it because he doesn't have the money to invest in that software to build those technological platforms and systems. And he's going to lose out to the competition, foisted by the regulation, all because of the technology revolution underway. These guys are dinosaurs. And part of the reason, the average age in our industry, Barry, you know the answer, is Way up there. It's almost 60 years of age. So facing this conundrum, the typical advisor is going to say in his 60s, oh, the hell with it. I just quit instead. And that's why half of them are going to be gone. 
We have been speaking with Rick Edelman. He is the founder and chairman of Edelman Financial Services. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue to discuss all things investing. You can find that wherever fine podcasts are sold, iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Rick, thank you so much for doing this. This has been a conversation I have been looking forward to. And I have I have so many more questions we haven't gotten to. Um, I have to ask: You launched this 31 years ago. You, you look back. Do you ever turn around and say, "How the hell did we get to 21 billion dollars?" It it, oh, it yeah. is the All success the of of this. Like, wait, what? What? Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah, because it wasn't it wasn't ever the intention. When I created my first business plan, which Gene and I did when we were planning the launch of our little practice, my business model called for us earning $3,000 a month. Did you did you bootstrap this or did you yes. use an outside investor at no, all? No, no, no. We, we bootstrapped. I don't get the sense you're a big private equity guy, though. You referenced the availability of capital. Do you use private equity capital? We do now. Yeah. Um, and what do, what do you... We were one of the first to have done that. We started in 2005 uh, with our first. We've gone through um, use it for acquisitions, or how does that no, work? No, just, just to fund the growth and fueling of our firm. Uh, you know, we got to the point recognizing in 05 we'd built uh, a very nice little practice uh, at that point. was was one of the largest in the industry. And like any other self-respecting entrepreneur, all of my net worth was tied up in the value of the business. People sure. would say, where, where do you invest? And I used to say, oh, highly speculative growth company. <laughs> and so... I guess as, I'm going to steal that line from you. Uh, I love that. As we wanted to grow on a national scale, we realized that would be very expensive and very risky. And any self-respecting financial planner would say, you shouldn't throw off some of that risk. Yes. And so that was what we did. And so we are now on our third private equity partner and our best to date, uh, Hellman and Friedman. And um, so it, it's been a great ride. And I assume you guys are still majority owners, you and, and Gene? No, we're not any longer. Uh, I'm still the largest individual shareholder of the firm, but Hellman mm-hmm. and Freeman uh, is now the majority holder. Is it? Is it? Oh, really? That's quite fascinating. Uh, in terms of control, do you still maintain control? or No longer. I used to, but I gave that to Hellman and Freeman. But they, ah, their attitude is that, and the reason that they were interested in partnering with Gene and me in the firm was that they love what we do and they want to sustain and expand it. They don't want to change it in any way. And they are quite passive uh, in their ownership and they are a fabulous uh, PE partner. There has been no, nothing noticeable by any of our staff or our planners or our clients by their presence. So one of the questions that come up all the time with the solo practitioners is hey, what happens if you're hit by a bus? What sort of succession plan do you right. have? So, so what uh, you just made me think of this now. What, how do you guys think about the future of Edelman Financial? What sort of succession plan? We recognized this a long time ago, and that was the impetus of getting outside money to mm-hmm. bring in and create a very talented executive team. 
and so we've been working very hard at this for years, and we've made, um, I'd say it's almost total, not yet total, but almost total in its transition. I now have two co-hosts on my radio show. Uh-huh. Um, so they I can, noticed that. They can take the show over at any moment. And I noticed that there. on your video segments, you're rotating a lot of other people through. Yes. Um, we have all in-house? All in-house? All in-house. We have 10 full-time instructors who do all of our seminars. We'll do 600 seminars this year nationally. Really? I, I do virtually none of them. You used to do all of them. Uh, I used to do all of them. Now I do virtually none. So we have all of our um, instructors doing all of our seminars. How productive are the seminars? Because, quick flashback, I remember about 15 years ago going with a buddy. His name is Tony Dwyer, who was, I forgot the name of the firm he was at. And it was my, this is like late 90s, early 2000s. It was my first exposure to that sort of seminar. Mm -hmm. And obviously the 90s are a different era than today. Wait, you could show up and, and have a long discussion with people, and that's the difference between them breaking out a checkbook and saying, here's half a million dollars, versus a phone call, an email, or whatever. How how successful, how productive do you find that form of communication versus radio, television, everything else? Uh, our seminars are very effective. We'll have tens of thousands of people attend. We've, we've over the years, have had, I don't know how many. Half millions. Of, millions. Point, I, right? I don't know how many people have attended our seminars over the decades. Um, but they're very effective as an educational tool because it allows people to sit in a 90-minute session um, with a, a speaker and, you know, there's audio and there's video, there's handouts. There, it's, it's very disarming. It's very low risk, very low pressure. We're not doing product pitching seminars like the guys pitching annuities. Right. What we're doing is education. And people pay a fee to come to our seminars. We typically charge 15 bucks to get in. Just in order to make it, they have to really be committed to yeah, it. Yeah, we, we're, not, we're not giving them a free steak dinner. We're not, you know, we're not there right. to feed their stomach. We're feeding their brains. And we're giving them information that they can use on their own with their own advisor. Or if they choose, they can hire us. It's entirely up to them. But nobody's pulling out a checkbook. Nobody's signing up anything that night. They're simply getting an education. That, that's fascinating. So you do books, you do radio, you do your own video. In terms of... The time you put in, what is the most time consumptive? And then I have a, a follow-up question. What what takes more of your time and attention, writing a book or doing the radio show? or or And now you don't do the seminars. Well, they're all – I mean, I create the seminars still uh, mm -hmm. and train the speakers. So, again, that one face, one voice, they're all messaging the same thing. They're following my script. Right. Um, and so – uh, they're, they're all, I don't know how much, I mean, the, the business is our life and, and, you know, I don't know, I don't have a It's all, watch. so then the flip side of that is, what do you think resonates the most with the consumer? Or, or different consumers? Yeah, some it's are, different. Some people love listening to the radio. Others love going to seminars. I love, love reading the books. The different people like to digest the content in their own style. And then, and, and now you I've proven to be a master at, at uh, all of those forms of communication. Ma master of all media? I think Howard Stern's going to get uh, angry at you if you... I didn't uh, quite say it that way. I did, though. Yeah. Um, and the videos, that's relatively new in the history of... of I mean, I know you've been doing it for a while. Yeah, But doing... the books, the radio came way before that. Well, I've been doing TV for almost 25 years. My first TV show was back in the 90s, and I've hosted a variety of them currently on PBS, and I do specials for them as well. And uh, TV is probably my least favorite. Uh, Why is medium. that? Well, because it's personal finance is not a very visual medium. You know, there are no cars exploding on set. There's no, you know, there's nobody with a low-cut dress and standing in front of a blue screen. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it, it, it's a... 
You haven't been watching Fox, apparently. (laughs) It's a medium that um, doesn't, I don't think is terribly conducive. It's a talking head conversation. So I work really hard on our TV shows to make it visually interesting and and stimulating. And I think we do a really good job at that. But uh, television is much harder to produce than radio because it has to be scripted to the minute. You're, right. you're creating a visual element in addition to an audible element. And it's just very, it's very difficult to do. It's, it, the audience loves it. It's great. But radio is so much easier to produce. I, I also notice that the television clips are th- the, on, on your site are two, three, four minutes. Yeah, we carve and, them up, yes. And the radio is much longer form. Correct. Because people are usually listening to the radio or a podcast they're the while car. they're doing other things. Right. That's good and bad. The good news is you can multitask. The bad news is you're only half listening, and you usually got wrong what you thought I said. If, if you're in the car or on a treadmill or on a bike, you're really paying attention. It's if you're trying to read... While you listen, or you're vacuuming, or you're yelling at the kids, or whatever, you know. So, and that, so people often will call and they'll say, "Rick said on the radio the following." You're like, "Uh, "No, he didn't." Um, But uh, (laughs) before we get to our favorite questions, I have to ask about this astronomy thing. How did you get interested in astronomy, and and what are you doing with that? Well, I'm really bad at it. Um, When you say bad at it, so you haven't discovered gravity waves. I appreciate that. But all you know, I can't. I can't tell you most of what I'm looking at at the night sky. There are apps for that. You have any? I, yes, I have. They're the apps. fantastic. But no, 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 no. I don't like them. Uh, I mean, I have a GPS on my uh, uh, own um, saddle uh, on my own um, telescope, but right. I don't like to use it because what what fascinates me about astronomy is what fascinated Galileo and uh, Huygens and. Um, uh, Hevelius and and all of these guys from the Renaissance, they were looking up at the night sky not knowing what they were looking at. Right. And when Galileo pointed his telescope to Jupiter and saw the the moons of Jupiter for the first time ever, uh, when he looked at the rings of Saturn for the first time, the first time that uh, Clavicus saw the Orion Nebula, uh, this it was the age of wonder. And so when I use a telescope, I don't use a GPS, which tells me, you know, point it to Neptune because I want to see it. Uh, instead, I, I don't want, don't show me a, a, um, a dark cluster. I instead want to just take my telescope, point it up at the sky and see what I see and enjoy the wonder of this. And that has been our basis of astronomy. So what Gene and I do is we collect rare astronomy books. We collect huh. books from the 1500s and 1600s written by uh, Brahe and, and these greats in the field of astronomy uh, who were documenting for the very first time things that no human had ever seen before, trying simultaneously to explain what they were looking at. And it's the age of wonder that unfortunately we've gone away. We had this, this solar eclipse a couple of months Fa- ago. Amazing, fascinating. But everybody knew it was coming, and everybody knew what it was, and everybody knew why it was and what it all meant. Back in the 1600s and in the, in the year 1000, when a solar eclipse came, they would cause wars. It caused people to panic. The Fear- gods are angry. Exactly. And so we've lost the wonder of astronomy to oh, a degree, see, and that's now, my fascination. So here's where I have to totally disagree with you. Okay. We absolutely have not lost the wonder of astronomy. Right now, the biggest debate going on in, in cosmology is dark matter. Yes. Have we found, a, we've actually recently discovered 
that most of what we thought was dark matter is really just very thinly dispersed gases and dust. Understood. And, and I'll take it a step further, and that's the multiverse concept. Um, well, that's a whole. That's a whole different level. I understand that, but so I, yes, I don't mean to suggest that the age of wonder is gone. But I, what you're talking about requires a pretty advanced level of knowledge that most consumers looking up at the night sky. In fact, let's face it, most people looking up at the night sky can't see any Ooh, stars, right? Because of light, light pollution. pollution, yeah, and they live in cities where the lights just kill it and so what i have been focusing on is this age of wonder and so what gene and i did was we gave a bunch of money to rowan university to create the edelman planetarium uh-huh. and we have thousands of school children every year going to the planetarium for free because if you can get a child excited about science sure. at a young age they become immersed in science for life and we know that that's the key to america's productivity in the future no doubt. Are, is stem education no doubt so we're very heavily focused on science education for for kids this is why we've given rowan another big bucket of money for the edelman fossil park which is paleontology mm-hmm. we're we're finding dinosaurs in south jersey um, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. They're and hard to find, but they're everywhere. Not at the fossil park. You go in there for an hour, you will find fossils, and you get to take them home. Wow, that's cool. And so by getting kids to focus on, I think, the two most fun sciences, dinosaurs and stars, paleontology and astronomy, right. we can uh, make a big difference in uh, these kids' lives and in the nation's competitive edge over the next several decades. So what do you what do you read? What do you pay attention to related to astronomy? Because... If you're on Twitter, you could follow some amazing people. It's like building yes. your own. Um, Phil played as bad astronomer and Michelle Thaler, and there's a whole run of people who are just wonderful. Is there anything you, anyone you read, any blogs you follow, any television shows you like? Not in astronomy particularly. I am more focused these days over the past 10 years on exponential technologies generally. Okay. Because I think that's more impactful uh, to our daily lives and uh, of to me, just greater fascination of artificial intelligence, robotics, machine learning, uh-huh. big data, uh, neuroscience, uh, bio- all really intriguing things. Yeah, and that's the, what my new book is. My ninth book is all about: the truth about your future. How these exponential technologies are going to impact our personal finances. Let me make one television recommendation, and then we'll get back to our questions, which is on the uh, on the Science Channel. How the Universe Works. Yes, we do watch that. We also watch Planets. Planets them, is interesting. Yeah, yeah so, the, yeah, I mean, it's... I, I, Have you been paying attention to the thought process about the new ninth planet somewhere out beyond the uh, um, one of the big asteroid belts, beyond Uranus is, this plan- Uranus is this giant planet that we've never been able to see that is potentially disrupting... Um, comets and other things. Yeah, and I'm I'm a big fan of the fact that Pluto was demoted. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I don't I, know, I don't disagree with yeah, that. Yeah, I, I do. In fact, I went to a uh, an event at the Smithsonian by the guy who did it, and it was a great presentation. He said why I killed Pluto, Pluto, and why it deserved his, it. His daughter was very angry at him. Uh, very much so because of the whole Disney yes. thing. Yes. Um, but um, yeah, so there's no question. I I think you're right that the ninth planet, the real ninth planet, has been discovered in our solar system. I'm fascinated by um, the fact that we now have satellites that have reached interstellar space. Right. You mean the the original Voyager? Yeah, that um, they have now. People don't understand what you mean by interstellar space. There's, means, some, there's some argument if it's truly in yeah, interstellar. They're at the outer edges of the solar system, but they're far beyond Pluto. The concept that 
the light from the sun doesn't reach it. Right. That is an, I mean, look up at the sky and when you see something black, it means that what's behind it hasn't been able to reach us yet. And that's how far away Voyager is. That's just heady to me. That's mind blowing. And what, the one big reason I like astronomy, it helps ground us. It helps us realize in our busy, important you days. You are a tiny, insignificant nothing. Exactly. As am I. So let's not get too caught up in our own self-importance. Which, which, by the way, is what's so fascinating about the rare Earth thesis. And I'll give you a 30-second digression. So originally, uh, go back a thousand years, and Earth is the center of the universe, and there is no other planets, and there is no other life anywhere else. It's just us. Right. And then we discover not only are there 100 billion stars or 200 billion stars in our galaxy. There are a couple of hundred billion galaxies in our known universe before we even get to the multiverse. But it turns out the universe is an extremely hostile place. Mm-hmm. With In the center of a galaxy, there's just too much radiation to sustain life as we know it. Uh, in the outer uh, parts of the galaxy, there just isn't um, enough heavy metals to create uh, planets that have enough gravity or have enough actual landmass that you can have an atmosphere and have. And you end up turning out that the sort of most systems are binary, which creates very irregular orbits, which creates very regular seasons. The All the unique factors that came together in the solar system with this planet, with this unusually large moon relatively close to us, is exceedingly rare. And you may end up with not with millions of planets that can sustain... Earth-like intelligent advanced life, but only a dozen or so per galaxy. I love that whole fascinating digression because it's just full circle for completely different reasons. And by the way, I have no idea if it's true. It's just a fascinating thought experiment. Yeah, until it's all irrelevant because until they conquer the speed of light, uh, which theoretically verge, impossible. Which, well, but they're on the verge of doing this. There's a design underway now that they think they can send spaceships out at 40% of the right. speed of light. That itself is pretty remarkable. Yeah. They're doing it with laser beams. Um, that until they solve that issue, it's all academic because right. everything is so far away. Even if the life is there, we're too far away to ever know it. Right. By the time you get there, that their life cycle is already right. over. Right. It, it's fascinating. All right. In the last 12 minutes or so we have, let's attack the, the last of our uh, questions. Who are some of your early mentors? Anybody uh, really stands out as guiding your career? In the financial industry, there were none. I I invented most of what we do in our Mm -hmm. firm, and we were pioneers in the type of advice we were giving and the way we were delivering it, who we were delivering it for. Uh, So there really weren't mentors in the field itself. Uh, I have to thank my parents, my father and my mom, because they were entrepreneurs and business owners. And most of what I learned about being a business owner, I learned from osmosis from growing up in that household. What did your parents do? What were they doing? For uh, my dad uh, was a pioneer in his industry, in the bowling industry. He ran bowling tournaments across the country mm-hmm. uh, and became the biggest at it. And even today, my brother now running the business outside of uh, out, uh, out of Las Vegas. Um, so it's you know bowling was a huge industry in the 50s, 60s, and 70s sure. in this country. The number one participant sport in the nation. Some argue it's fishing, but you, there are no numbers to support that. Everybody knows how many people go to a bowling alley. Huh. So um, so that was a neat way to grow up. 
Um, within the media world, I have had a large number of mentors. Radio and TV, there were a large number of people who helped spur my growth and development and skill set at being a host of radio and television. And I have found over the years that in the media world, there are a lot of people who will help you in your success. I'm sure you've experienced that here at Bloomberg. For sure. Unlike Wall Street, where it's very cutthroat and people will do whatever they can to hurt you and harm you and steal your business. But that's not the way it works in media. People are very helpful and, and supportive to uh, uh, aid your career. At least that was been my experience in there, media. There is some mentorship that actually takes place in Wall Street, but I think it's faded over time. And the sort of mentorship that existed 20 years ago or 50 years ago is all but but gone today. It's it's few and far between. How about how about investors? Who has influenced your approach to thinking about portfolio management? Markowitz, clearly. Um, Harry Markowitz, winner of the Nobel Prize for his modern portfolio theory. Uh, the basis of his work is the foundation of our investment management approach. Uh, Fama and French, who just. Uh, who also have won the Nobel Prize. They're three-factor Fama, Fama not French. Uh, yeah, well, their joint work is what led right. to it. French is overdue. Um, yeah, and he, you know, maybe he left Chicago a little too early, you know, being at Dartmouth. Uh, you know, so those guys imagine, in Chicago. Imagine just, going to New Hampshire because the weather is better than Chicago. That's, uh, uh, what can I tell you? Uh, so their three-factor model, now a five-factor model, is um, – uh, taken the industry to a whole nother level in investment management concepts. And now uh, Richard Thaler, who's this year's winner of the Nobel. Also who, in Chicago. Uh, a behavioral finance guy. Um, Markowitz told me, uh, I've had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with Markowitz, and he told me that he, although Thaler is considered the father of behavioral finance, Markowitz considers himself the grandfather. He like wrote that. the He wrote the first paper on behavioral finance back in the 50s. Wow. And uh, it's a fascinating um, thought experiment that um, acknowledges that humans don't behave the way classical economists expect humans to behave. And everybody gets it except economists. That's what's so fascinating about behavioral finance. So we've been studying all of this. I've been writing about it for decades. And those three major themes uh, explain the basis of our investment management approach. Let's talk about books. What are some of your favorite books, be they fiction, nonfiction, finance-related or not? What, what are you reading? What have you enjoyed? I'm a huge fan of early American history. I've written, or not written, read most uh, uh, of what I can get my hands on. Uh, Chernow and Isaacson are my two favorite uh, uh, authors, historians. Did you, did you get the good new Galileo book from uh, uh, Isaacson? I, I, I do have it, but I'm not reading it yet because I'm reading Chernow's book on Grant. Oh, so really? I'm a third of the way through uh, that thousand page book. I brought the Galileo book home and my wife grabbed it and she's like, I'm like, can I take a look at that? She's like, I'm 100 pages into it. I'm sucked in. Uh, I'll give it back to yeah, you. Yeah, so, so that's my next biography. I'm a big fan of, of uh, American history and biography. And, and uh, the problem I have with the books that, that Gene and I have collected on early uh, astronomy is that they're almost all in Latin, uh, which we don't read. Uh, a few of them are in Greek, which is even worse. Greek, Google Translate. It'll just um, translate it right for you. Yeah. Um, are are so. these books, by the way, are they purely, are they not in digital format? Have oh, you, no, these are books. No, I understand that. But have you gone through the process of preserving them for prospect no. for for the no. future no. in some digital format. You no. are entrusted with these rare books. Yes, we do recognize that we are the current caretakers as opposed to the owners of these books. Exactly. And so, um, 
you know, we have plans. Um, so, but. so think about going digital with those eventually. Chernow has put out a number of spectacular. Oh yeah, he's, what he's else awesome. have you read of his that you really like? Um, I I like everything that that uh, that he's written. His uh, book on Washington, uh, I love, and um, I mean, it just their history is not dry when it's done correctly and they read like uh fiction they read like uh thrillers and even when you know the outcome you're amazed at what you didn't know that and it helps you gain a fresh appreciation and humility for the founding of our nation and that's what, probably my biggest regret if i had things to do over again i would join the military really yeah, that's I, I grew up in an era that was just after you the, and me both uh after uh, the vietnam war and and the draft was over and uh, before uh, the Gulf Wars, and so how how old are you, Rick? I'm 59. All right, so you got you got three years on me. I've always had a similar thought. I debated it very briefly in college. I never. It wasn't even a debate for me. I mean, my father was adamant. He served in World War II, as did my uncles. But my dad, coming out of Vietnam, was adamant, and my brothers and I had no. It was not a conversation. So, but looking back on it and, and reading um, what these folks did to build our nation, um, it's it's very humbling. We we have a number of military vets in our office, and as do we, uh, 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 where we have a disproportionate number, and it's always been one of those things. You know, uh, when I was younger and and less disciplined and less responsible, that's something I would have loved to do. Um, did Chernow write a J.P. Morgan biography? Am I remembering that correctly? I don't know if that was him or somebody else. You probably Google it. But first but Washington and Grant are the two you really yeah, like. It's Benjamin Franklin's uh, that Isaacson did is awesome. Uh, I mean, they're two great writers, and so whoever they write about uh, is worth reading. So uh, all biographies. Let, let's talk a little bit about um, and the, lots of books on exponential technologies. Uh, let's talk. I have on my website a complete list of the books I recommend, as well as in our industry. There are so many books in our field about manias and crashes sure. uh, that go back 100 years to help people understand what to do when markets tank, which they inevitably do, uh, going back to the tulip craze of 1636 and all the way through to the crash of 29. Um, so Kindleberger, on, is that the book you're... you're uh, that's one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, there are... Uh, I list a couple of dozen books on my website um, that you ought to read if you want to become more familiar with how money works and how to make it work for you. In I will addition include to the a link I to I will include a link on the write up to this to to your book list. Um, no, and what I I was trying to pull it up on Google, but it didn't come up. House of Morgan is what did come up. That ah. is a churnout book. Um, so let's talk about a time you failed. Tell us when you tried something that didn't work. And what you learn from the experience? Oh, I've never failed at anything. I've just learned lots of ways not to do things. Meaning, <laughs> so, meaning what? You know, you learn more from your failures than your successes. Of course. You know, you learn more when you're listening than when you're talking. And so, we, you know, entrepreneurial activity means taking risks, doing things that have never been tried, and they don't always work out the way that you'd hoped. I can't begin to tell you the money that we've blown doing things in ways that uh, didn't work out. But you know what? You learn how not to do it next time. And there's a rule in our firm, a basic rule that we teach at uh, new hire orientation to everybody who comes in. And one of those rules is the following. You're allowed to make mistakes. You're expected to make mistakes. You're simply not allowed to make the same mistake twice. Always, always a new mistake. Yeah, Something go make new a new one. There are plenty of mistakes out there to make. There's no mistake we tell our staff. There is no mistake you can make that 
I can't fix. We're not in the medical field. Right. You're not going to kill anybody. Don't worry about this. There's nothing you can do we can't fix. Don't worry about making a mistake that costs the client money because we'll reimburse the client. So don't worry about this. Do what is in the best interest of the client. Do what you think is right. Use your judgment. Use your brain. That's why we're hiring you. And if you do make a mistake, tell us. We'll fix it. And now you know what not to do next time and go on and figure out something else to do wrong. Um, down to our last few questions. What do you do to keep mentally sharp outside of the office? What do you do to relax? Uh, my wife and I love to entertain. Uh, we love movies. Um, we love to travel, which historically we've never really been able to do. But finally, thanks to Ryan Parker as our new CEO, we get that opportunity now. Uh, and I love to uh, play cards. I love to play chess. love to shoot pool. And uh, we just be with friends. That, that's a nice, nice list. If a recent college grad or millennial came to you and said they were interested in going into finance, what sort of advice would you give them? Don't do it the way I did it, because the way I did it no longer exists. If it, don't do what you're trying to do either, Barry. I mean, I, I would tell them not to do what you're doing, because what you and I do no longer exists. And that is—is is that true that yes, you can't, can't go backwards into this? No, you can't become a mass media guy anymore. Radio, as you know, Barry, has evolved and changed dramatically over sure. the years. The opportunity that I had to host a radio show 27 years ago doesn't exist today. Huh. And so I would not encourage somebody new in the business to try to become a mass media person. Do not try to become a broadcaster. Instead, become a narrow caster. Meaning, develop a niche. Um, an I know, expertise? Is yeah, that? I know an advisor in Maryland who only works with Marriott employees. His office is across the street from Marriott's world headquarters. I know an advisor in Dallas who only works with United Airlines pilots because that's their hub. I know an advisor who only works with retirees, another one only with executives, another one only with divorcees. Uh, it's like medicine. My brother just had surgery on his thumb. And the surgeon is a guy who only operates on thumbs. He's the thumb guy. He's the thumb guy. No matter if you've got an issue, you're going to go see this Dr. guy. Dr. Thumb. Yeah. Well, we need to specialize in our field. There are We're becoming more complex, more complicated with tax law and everything else, investment management issues. Be, if, be, be the planner to plumbers. Go to the plumbing convention, write for the plumbing magazine, and don't take anyone who's not a plumber. Be a narrow caster. Focus on your niche. What motivates you? What do you love? Serve that audience and no one else. That's fascinating. And our final question, and, and my personal favorite, what is it that you know about investing management, financial services, uh, the whole field we toil in today that you wish you knew 30 years ago? I wish I had realized earlier that what we were doing in our firm at Edelman Financial was unique in the industry, that the fact that we were serving the mass affluent, middle-class Americans and that the rest of Wall Street wasn't, I didn't realize. Uh, I didn't. It took me over a decade to figure that out. Uh, I couldn't understand why we were so popular and why so many people were coming to us, and it's because nobody else would talk to them. They were orphaned. They had been orphaned by the rest of Wall Street. Exactly. And so had I realized that earlier, we would have begun our, begun our national growth earlier. That, that's quite fascinating. Rick, thank you for being so generous with your time. This was really... Quite delightful. Well, Barry, you make it easy. Thank you. Um, we have been speaking with Rick Edelman. He is the chairman, co-founder, and uh, no longer CEO at Edelman Financial Services. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes, I, 
I everything. iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and you can see any of the other 160-plus or so such previous conversations that we've had. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. If you enjoyed this, go to Apple iTunes and give us uh, a review. Write something up. You can see that uh, at iTunes.com slash podcast, and you could just search for Masters in Business. Uh, not only can you see all the other previous podcasts, but there's an opportunity to, to give us a review and share your thoughts with us. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not thank my crack staff who helps put together these shows. Medina Parwana is our audio engineer slash executive producer. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Michael Batnick is uh, in charge of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.